Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Mike Raymond and Michael Neff from the Cottonmouth Club coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week, Megatej Paul, a writer for Houston City Book, FoodNetwork.com, and other outlets. Mega, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, I talked to Ronnie Killen about Killen's TMX. Uh, This has been billed as his new Tex-Mex restaurant, and that's how Ronnie kind of presented it when he announced it. But he's had a bit of a change of heart. He has been traveling to Mexico. He's gone to Cabo San Lucas. He's gone to Mexico City. He's been eating a lot of regional Mexican food. And so TMX will do the fajitas and enchiladas that they've been kind of doing at Killen's, smoke ha- at Killen's Barbecue on the dinner menu. But it's also going to do a lot of regional Mexican food. Mega, I know that you're a Ronnie Killen fan. Yeah, who isn't? Okay. <laughs> no, no, that's fair. What do you what do you think? I mean, can can Ronnie can can Ronnie be Rick Bayless? Can he can he channel these Mexican flavors at, at TMX? So I have to tell you, I went to uh, Killen's Barbecue um, probably a few months ago, and I'm just gonna go ahead and be bold and say that I was probably the first to know about this. Ooh, ooh, yeah. I, I was probably before you. And he gave me um, a sampling of some of the dishes that I think are going to be on the menu at um, at the Killens TMX. And they were really, really good. I mean, I, I think it was my idea for him to start the restaurant, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think it might be your friend. I think your friend Greg Morago also kind of tried to talk him into it. I mean, it was it was it might have been a collaborative effort, but um, I mean, I think that when I say um, something, you know, it goes with Ronnie. No, I'm just kidding. I'm no, kidding. no, no. I'm so kidding. what did you? So what did you eat? So he made us. He made us a brisket nachos, which I think are already on the menu at the steakhouse. Yeah, um, uh, those yeah. have been on the menu for a long time. He also made us some ground beef enchiladas, I think, which were amazing, and I think those are definitely going to be on the menu. Um, and. I think now he's since he's been going to Mexico a lot, the dishes are maybe changing a little bit, um, which, you know, you're right. And I think maybe the decor is changing, which I think is totally fine. I mean, I think he's just evolving a little bit. Yeah, I think he kind of leased the property with one intention to do the dishes, to give to give a, a more permanent home to the some of the dishes that have been on the barbecue menu or the dinner menu at the barbecue restaurant. Uh, but he's finding in these travels that he's, interested in mole and different kinds of salsa and like he was telling me about uh, a barbacoa beef rib that he was fooling around with that, that ran as a special last week the barbecue restaurant where he smoked a beef rib for a few hours like like you normally would and then he braised it in all the barbacoa spices and then served that with a lotus instead of the Killen's creamed corn. Right. And, you know, Ronnie says he's been making Tex-Mex for his family and at home for years and years and years. So, you know, this is just something I think he just wants to share with um, Houston diners. And, and you know, if you follow Ronnie on social media or um, are aware of like when he posts, he is very open to asking the public what they think about salsa. Like, are you a green salsa person? Are you a red salsa person? What kinds of things do you like? And he's open to taking those suggestions because he wants to know what people like and, um, and you know, he used use those into incorporating that into his menu. Right. And the other thing about moving in, in a more explicitly Mexican direction is that it allows him to do more with seafood, which is not something he's really known for. But, of course, he has... Graham Laborden is his kind of director of operations, and and Graham's got that great seafood background. Certainly, we all remember the food at Bernadine's, and so he can take some of the flavors of the dishes he's had at Cabo San Lucas and apply that to like Gulf Coast fish, and I think that's really intriguing. And you're right about the decor. I mean, he's sourcing tables, chairs, tiles, sconces, 
lights, like the whole thing, that's all coming in from Mexico. Right. I think it's, it's only natural that you start with one idea. And then, you know, when you start traveling, I mean, travel just adds so much to your life. I think that, you know, I think literally, I think everyone should just do it all the time because when you leave Houston, you may have something in your mind for your restaurant. And then when you go, you know, to a little town in Mexico, it just may change your mind totally, you know, and well, he's probably some of us have, realized Some of us have to stay home and work now. Oh, well, yeah, no, I wouldn't know anything I don't about get to, that. I don't either. get to travel that much, but. I've, what what are you trying to say? Do you want to brawl? <laughs> I do not want to brawl. <laughs> okay, on to the next. All right, topic number two. Kevin Floyd, Chris Shepard's business partner, uh, one of the founders of Anvil, has left his role at Underbelly Hospitality. He is not going to be their operations director. He was the managing partner of Hay Merchant. He stepped down from all of that. In his place a company called MLB Capital Partners, that is the group that is behind the transformation of the Canino's farmer's market, has increased its stake in Underbelly Hospitality. Uh, Todd Mason, who is one of their partners, is going to be more involved in Underbelly Hospitality's day-to-day operations. Mega, I, I I don't know exactly what there is to say about this, but it feels really significant to me. Kevin has played a really key role uh, obviously, he founded Anvil. He was he and Bobby Hugel together, like built Anvil from the ground up and founded it and set it and set it on the path to success. And then he and Bobby worked to open a number of businesses. They partnered with Chris Shepard to open Underbelly and Hay Merchant. Uh, they partnered with David Buer to open Blacksmith, and then all these cocktail bars, Julep, the Nightingale Room, and the Pastry War. They were two of the key players in the founding of the Okra Charity Saloon, along with. Well, a whole bunch of people, but, you know, Brad Moore, Ryan Rouse, Paul Petronella, uh, Justin Yu is in on that. Uh, Seth and Terrence from Passing Provisions weren't on that. So he's been this kind of behind-the-scenes figure where I don't know that many diners necessarily, unless you're like a hay merchant regular, I don't know that many diners could pick Kevin Floyd out of a lineup. Like if I, if I showed you flashcards of people in the Houston culinary world, but it just seems significant to me. Well, yeah, no, that's definitely significant. I mean, that's um, he has quite the resume. So I think when something like that happens, um, it's quite the shakeup. But, you know, I don't think um, I mean, do we know what he's doing next? No, we don't. And a couple of years ago, maybe even two or three, he said to me that he, he lives on the East End and he had an idea about maybe opening a bar in that part of town. Now, obviously, that part of the city has changed a lot, right? Everything around the soccer stadium. I mean, we were, you know, before we started taping, uh, producer Michael was saying he just went to Rodeo Goat, and obviously the the agricultural properties are about to open, and Nancy Hustle is blowing up there. So I don't know if, if he still sees the same opportunity that he did, that he does, you know. I don't know if he still sees the same opportunity now that he did three years ago, but... You know, it's it's floating out there. He's got he's got, I think he I think what he wants to do is spend time with his family, right? He's got a he's got a young child that he probably hasn't gotten to see very much of. And uh, well, if that's the case, then then I mean, good for him. And then he moves on and does that. Well, for the restaurants that he's leaving behind, I mean, those are all really established, um, you know, places. So I think it just opens up the opportunity for somebody else to come in and take that chance to run a beverage program and um, right. I mean, that's great. If you're one of the managers at Hey Merchant, you know, this is good news for you. You get to buy the beer now. Exactly. You can, you can, you know, I don't know if Kevin had any, any breweries he was particularly like a super fan of or conversely, like really opposed to, but you know, the world is your oyster. You can, you can buy or not buy those breweries now. And in terms of the operations of underbelly hospitality's restaurants, right. They all have, you know, chef de cuisines, they have Nick Fine as the culinary director, they have Matthew Pridgen as the wine director, you know, so so they have a, a solid leadership base, obviously, with Chris at the top. So I don't think from their perspective, this is going to change their day to day operations. Right. I don't think it's going <laughs> to. None of these restaurants are shutting down over this, but I think it's great for someone else to be able to get an opportunity to do that job and um, work in that role. Right. So cool. Yeah, and we'll see what happens with Kevin. I mean, you yeah, know, I mean, to... it's cool. It would be awesome if he opened something because obviously he's got a great um, resume. So it'd be really neat. I mean, I'm always excited when someone breaks off and starts their own thing because I think Houston needs more stuff. 
I'm all about it. Yeah, more stuff to talk about. Yeah. All right. Topic number three. Bud's Pitmaster Barbecue closed. Now, <laughs> ask me the obvious question. Are you just devastated? I, I thought you were going to ask me, what is Bud's Pitmaster Barbecue? <laughs> well, no. I mean, doesn't everybody know what Bud's is? No, I'm kidding. I don't um, think that many people knew. I didn't know until you told me today. So, so Bud's Pitmaster Barbecue was the barbecue restaurant in the George R. Brown Convention Center, part of this wave of restaurants that opened along Avenida Houston. Well, Bud's actually didn't open before the Super Bowl. It was supposed to, like all the rest of them yeah, were. Yeah. It opened like a year after the Super Bowl. A year too late. And they're they're blaming Harvey, right? They issued a, a press release that said, you know, we had a downturn in business after Hurricane Harvey, and we never recovered. Now, as maybe one of the very few professional food writers in Houston to have visited Bud's Barbecue, <laughs> I am going to tell you that the reason they closed is because their barbecue was awful. Well, I don't eat in convention centers as a local I don't... Uh, well, but you live downtown. I mean, this yes, is close to you. Yes, but I don't park... I, well, no. I just don't eat in convention centers. I just think that's well, strange. That, well, okay. That new grotto, actually, in the convention center is actually pretty good. No, I so I have eaten there, but, you know, they have an entrance outside. Yeah, and so Bud's where, did, too. Oh, yeah, it did? It was yeah. right next door. I have never seen that. Never. <laughs> I apologize, but I have no idea where Bud's is. I've never yeah, it, seen it, it was not. Before. It was not well marketed. And what marketing attempts they made, like in the beginning, they they made up this. Well, it seems like they made it up. I I shouldn't I shouldn't. It it read like a made up story that that the owner's great grandfather worked at the King Ranch, and that's where he learned how to make barbecue, and he passed that down through the family. And they had this line in the in the information about, you know, some people say barbecue was invented at the King Ranch, and if that's true then this guy was one of its inventors. Well, that's nonsense because barbecue, no one says barbecue was invented at the King Ranch, right? Barbecue has this very complicated cross-cultural history from the South, from uh, African-American people that, that moved to Texas, to East Texas, and then German immigrants who brought uh, curing and smoking when they, when they came to Texas, and also, you know, Mexican traditions like barbacoa. So... All of those things kind of combine, and eventually you get modern Texas barbecue. So it was never, the King Ranch doesn't have any, as far as I know, the King Ranch doesn't have anything to do with it. And then they used these old historic photographs of barbecue from like the 1930s and used that to promote the restaurant, kind of implying that there was a connection. But the problem is that like those for people who really care about barbecue and, and I have to give a shout out to Scott Sandlin who writes about barbecue for Houston food finder in this, like Scott was like, Oh no, that's bullshit. That, that photo is a very famous photo and it's, it has nothing to do with, it wasn't even taken in Texas. So, you know, you try to create this fake backstory and give yourself a provenance that you don't really deserve. And of course, barbecue is all about authenticity, you know? And so, and then, and then the food was awful. I mean, just, you know, I like sometimes when I have a bad meal at a restaurant, I feel obligated to go back like like maybe I did something wrong or maybe I just caught them on a bad day. And I and I feel that way about. Well, most recently, I feel that way about Shell Shack, like I owe Shell Shack another visit. Bud's was so bad and just so. Um, and it just seemed so hopeless that I, I did not I was not inspired to go back. I always try to give a restaurant two visits, you know, before. Before bash, I mean, I, I don't really don't bash anybody. No, that's though. not really your style. That, you'll leave that to me. Yeah, exactly. That's why we're friends. Yeah. But um, yeah, two visits, I think, is a must. So sometimes I, I, yes, I that is my preference. But in this particular instance, it was so bad that it, there was just no way. Well, hopefully they find their way and maybe they'll come back eventually. Oh, no, they're, the no, no, they're, they're gone for good. Okay. I, think, I think the really <laughs> critical question... <laughs> I think the critical question is what happens to the space uh, because it is a great location. It's right across from Discovery Green. You may not eat in convention centers, but obviously people no, who people go to the do. conventions yeah. do. Yeah, visitors. And so whether it becomes another barbecue restaurant or whether it becomes something else, I mean, that all remains to be seen. But I, I wouldn't expect it to stay empty. Like, I, I think by the end of the year, we'll probably have an announcement about what it's going to become. Well, you let me know. I promise. 
All right, that's my Bud's Barbecue rant. All right, topic number four. There's a lot of hotel restaurant news just kind of circulating. Yeah. And I want to start with tribute at the Houstonian because you have been there and I have not. I just went there on um, last week on yeah. Thursday or Wednesday. Yeah. So this is the new restaurant that's replacing Olivet on the Houstonian property. Yeah. What was it like? How was it? So it's... Um, it's they totally redid the inside. It's really um, very modern looking. It's obviously very pretty. They had um, for the party they had stations set up, so I was able to try several different things. Um, and Chef Neil was there, and he's very sweet, and I really like him. So they had, um, I guess, their concept is it's like not there, so there's Tex Mex. This is Lex Mex, so it's like Louisiana Texas food, Mexican food. Right. They're calling it tribute, and the yeah. dishes are kind of paying tribute to. Kind of Mexican and Southern and Louisiana influences on right. Houston's cuisine. Right. So I had, they, there was like things like shrimp and grits and, um, you know, I mean, really delicious. I mean, all kinds of rolls and breads. I mean, it was a carb fest 2018. Um, yeah, it was, it was delicious stuff. Like I said, lots of, I mean, lots of pastries. There was this amazing chocolate, like bread pudding dessert with, ice cream and peanut butter cereal that they put on top. I mean, I'm a cereal killer, so um, that was delicious. Um, yeah, it was. I would like to go back for a regular visit because, you know, at a party, it's kind of hard to yeah, really no, cause, enjoy. Good, because that was my question is, would you go back? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, yes. Like you're, you're considering, it's a Friday night, you're considering a range of dinner options is tribute in the mix. Yeah, so I actually was debating on going back for Thanksgiving. So this year, my family and I were dining out for Thanksgiving. We're not going to cook. So I was thinking about considering, if they're open, if they're doing Thanksgiving, I was thinking about doing that just because it's something new and it's obviously such a classic destination. So I was thinking about that. But just on a regular night, I want to go back and eat at tribute. Yeah, I, I want to try it because I like Chef Neil Cox, right? Yes, Neil, Neil Cox, yeah. yeah. And Vanessa Trevino Boyd is a sommelier, and I've followed her, yeah. you know, from Philippe to 60 Degrees Mastercrafted and, and all over the place, and she's really good. And, you know, I think that people um, just don't consider the Houstonian because they think it's so, I don't know, I mean, like fancy pants. Hoity-toity. Yeah, but it, and even though it kind of is and you feel really special when you're there, it's really welcoming, and they don't really act like that. I mean, you know, I, I can get silly when I have a couple of glasses of wine and they don't make you feel like you don't belong there. Like they totally welcome that behavior. And they, I mean, people around there were definitely getting crazy at the party. And um, it was just totally fine. And the like when the party was done, the bar there was just super lit. Okay. Which, Good to know. Yeah, which I don't know if you would expect that at the Houstonian on a, I think it was like a Wednesday night. Yeah, it was a Wednesday night. Yeah. I, I would not expect that. Yeah, and this is not even like the summer. This like kids are in school. So um, it was a good time. All right. And then two other items to note just briefly. Uh, the Lancaster Hotel downtown, yeah. right in the Arts District, has reopened. They have a new restaurant called Cultivated F&B. Have they, have they invited you over to that yet? Have no, they haven't it? invited me. Um, I'm not uh, you. I don't get invited everywhere. But <laughs> I walk by all the time, and it is so posh and looks so cute. They so. did a really good job. Yeah. They 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 made the windows bigger. It lets more light in. Yeah. They got rid of some banquettes and put in tables. It's more comfortable. I mean, I they they tasted me through some of the stuff. I will say the menu is pretty standard hotel fare, right? They have a steak, they have a chicken, they have a salmon, they have, you know, deviled eggs, they have all the, the usual kind of stuff. I think it's a good version of it. And if I were going to a show in the arts district, you know, the Wortham, Jones Hall, whatever, and I was dressed up a little bit, that would feel like a really nice place to have dinner, I think. And, yeah. and obviously very convenient. So I have noticed that on show nights, it's like packed. So I think people are doing that. Yeah. And they're going to, they're, they've built out a little patio, like a little sidewalk thing. And I think that'll be really nice, especially now that the weather has cooled off a little bit. And, it, you know, I, and certainly if, if you ever had occasion to stay at the Lancaster in like a staycation situation, then I would see that as, as a really appealing option. And then uh, the last thing I want to note is that uh, Main Kitchen at the JW Marriott has a new chef. Uh, Josh, I'm sorry. You're not, I'm not going to even try to say your last name without, the, without it spelled out in front of me. But he's a young guy. He's in his early 30s. He came here from uh, the Del Coronado in San Diego, which is 
Yes, love it. Yes, one of the most posh resort hotels in the country. And he was going to Miami, and he just they recruited him to Houston, and he fell in love with it. And again, like he's not he's not reinventing the wheel necessarily. And I think I think Main Kitchen especially is a little bit of a is a tough sell for like day to day dining. But it's okay. So I live across the street from there. Okay. Um, and like I live in downtown and. Sometimes, you know, you just want to go and have like a hotel breakfast if you're not staying in a hotel. It's just they're just so fab and the coffee is so good. Um, And I have no groceries ever at home because I eat out all the time. So if I just feel like not just going to Starbucks or something, you just want to go somewhere a little nicer. I go to the main kitchen at JW because it's just so good. All right. Have you noticed a change since Josh took over the kitchen? He's been there for like two or three months. I'm not going to say it was just not good before. Now it's just you know, super, super good, but it was just really, you know, it's just really good. But yeah, maybe it's just a little extra better now. Yeah. And he's having a little fun with the dinner menu. He's doing like a, you know, bacon wrapped pork tenderloin. He's doing a kind of cool duck dish. I mean, there's, there is good stuff on that dinner menu. I, and I sort of enjoyed talking to him, but I still think it's like a tough sell. Like if, if I'm going for a nice dinner downtown, probably going to Patente. Right. There's, yes, Patente is so good. But there are other, I mean, there are other options, obviously. But if you find yourself at at that restaurant, because the bar is always a good time, you know, there's there's people from out of town and um, that location is really good because it's so close to Main Street and there's bars there. You will not be disappointed if you have to eat something. That's all I'm saying. Oh, no, you're in good hands. Yeah, for sure. Like, just know that if you eat there or if you happen to be staying there in that hotel, you know, eat something because the food's good. Yeah. Like I go there all the time as a local, so. All right. Well, no that that is a ringing endorsement, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No, I'm I'm telling you. All right, Mega. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating. So, Mega, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk about roti rotisserie. This is you know you you always ask me. To give you something <laughs> obscure, and I asked you once, by the way. Well, but that's okay. I'll just keep them coming. I can yeah, we'll it. we'll you know we can do something more glamorous the next time you're on the show. But no, but, I'm as hole in the wall as I am fancy pants. Okay, so you you have now been to Roadie Rotisserie. Was it sufficiently hole in the wall? It, I mean, it, it was in a shopping strip. It's so, in a strip center on yeah, Westheimer. Yeah. So I guess I guess so. The answer is yes. All right. So this is a this is a new newish. It's about three months old. Uh, European inspired sandwich shop in I guess what I would call the West Chase district, like yeah. kind of near Fondren and Westheimer, that does rotisserie meats and then sandwiches made with those rotisserie meats. Uh, so I actually have to give a quick shout out to Dan Zimmerman, the owner of Pax Americana, because Dan messaged me and told me about this place, and. Since I have written about it, uh, Jeff Balky has written about it for the Houston Press, and then Tim Malcolm at Houstonia has also written about it. So, so Rody Rotisserie has gone from kind of off the radar to Houston's hottest new restaurant uh, in about two weeks, which makes me really happy. But this is—it's just they're just sandwiches. But it's one of those things where one of the complaints I hear from from readers sometimes is that Houston either doesn't have any good sandwiches, which is nonsense. Or that Houston doesn't have enough good sandwiches, which I'm a little more sympathetic to. Megan, these are pretty good sandwiches. Yes. And they they give you the option of three different types of breads. Um, I think it's like a ciabatta, a pretzel bun, and then there was a third one. And I just came from there 30 minutes ago, so that tells you a little bit about my memory. But um, yeah, so the three different types of bread. Um, they've got a full menu, like rotisserie chicken, like you said. When I went, they had the, por- the porchetta, which they did not have when you went. No. So I've had something you haven't had. Yes. Um, and I have half in my purse, so maybe we can offer you some. But um, they're just, I, I like them because they're a little bit messy, too, and I like a good messy sandwich because I just feel like it's better. Um, mine had crispy pork skin in it, and so the meat was just really soft, and it just melted in your mouth. And then they had these little just bites were just like crispy you know, pork skin. And so it was just such a nice contrast. Um, and then it was just full flavored, you know? Yeah, a he does that. Uh, he does a balsamic glaze mm-hmm. on the chicken sandwich that's, it's, you know, a little bit sweet, but not overwhelmingly so and very good. They do cheeses that give like a nice kind of salt component. It, they're just, you know, there's a, like onions. It's, 
it's all very well constructed. I think they're they're very thoughtfully assembled. Right. And the quality of the meat is good. I mean, he's buying Creekstone Farms beef. I mean, that is, you know, that's the company that sells the brisket to Franklin Barbecue and Pickerton's Barbecue. And so it's very high quality stuff. He's using natural, hormone-free, you know, organic chicken, you know, chicken you can feel good about eating. And I assume that the pork is of similar quality. I think the pork is the same from the same farm. Yeah. That's what it said. Yeah, that's what it said on the menu. So this is this is a restaurant that, um, it, you know, it's a small, it's, a, it's independently owned. It's a one-off. It doesn't have PR. The chef took the order. Yeah, the, the owner, chef, the right. Owner. There's the, yeah. yeah, chef, chef, owner, uh, mops the floors at night. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just a guy. It's a guy with a couple of employees. But it's, it's so, in that sense, it's really very charming. Yeah. And, and again, the quality of the sandwiches are, are excellent. Yeah, I'm, I was a fan. Good. I would go back if it wasn't really. It's far for you. <laughs> Not in it's, the loop, yeah. It is happily very close to the Gout Media office, so it's going to be in my rotation. And you can... I think they're on they're on all the delivery apps, so you can DoorDash it or GrubHub it or yes, this is true. Whatever you want. So, all right, and then you just went to Lake Charles this weekend. Yes. Do you have any any tips for people going to Lake Charles? Yes. So I, you know, any other time I went to Lake Charles, I was always stay in the Golden Nuggets or stay at LaBerge and just eat in the casino because I'm just you know obviously a gambling addict and I never leave the tables. So um, this time I was able to venture out and go to some of the restaurants and I, I tried a couple. Well, I ate, I ate so much boudin this time, which is so ridiculous. So I went to Le Blue's landing, which they, it's like kind of like a butcher shop and they, they make the boudin like behind these huge glass windows. So you can kind of see the guy making it fresh, like from start to finish, which was amazing. And then they make cracklins like and they're hot and they just melt. I mean, I've never had cracklins like that before in my life, um, which was really cool. And so we had some smoked boudin there, and um, that was delicious. And um, then we went to a a really nice bakery called Beckery, and it's because the chef and the owner, her name is Rebecca, so super cute. Yeah. Um, We had uh, quiche and coffee and, you know, bread bread pudding for breakfast, yeah. Cinnamon rolls and all that kind of stuff. That was just a super cute bakery. Um, We went on a, um, let's see, we went to... Um, it was a thing called Boudin Wars, which they do every year. And you get, I, I know, more Boudin. You get Boudin, but you get lots of other things too, like smoked sausage and beef jerky and all these things that these chefs from kind of all over Louisiana come out and participate. And um, so you get to try all these things from all these cool Louisiana chefs, which um, I think that if you are there um, visiting Lake Charles, that's a good time to go because you get to kind of experience um, these different types of food from chefs that you may not have, you know, get to try otherwise. All right. And how'd you do at the tables? Um, I lost a lot of money. Okay. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. Sad. Hell, that's why I was eating out so much because I ran out of my cash, the cash flow. So um, otherwise, I'm, next- you know, I'm at the buffet at the casino. Right. Better luck next time. Yeah. All right. Mega, thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, we all follow you on Instagram at Hot Pink Houston and we read your work at HoustonCityBook.com. Thank you. And I'll be right back with Mike Raymond and Michael Matt. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Mike Raymond and Michael Neff from the Cottonmouth Club, a relatively new bar downtown. Mike, you've been on the show twice before, so you basically need no introduction, but welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, third time uh, repeat champion. Is that what we're calling it? Yeah. Okay. You're, you're our first third three-time podcast guest. I don't, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any prizes for you. There's no championship belt or anything, but I'll, I'll talk to the culture map powers that be and they'll give me not yet, not $5 yet. to commission something. There you go. Perfect. You know, in six months we'll, we'll make it four time. That's right. There you go. Michael Neff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Michael, let me start with you. I always like to start at, at sort of the beginning of people's careers. How did you become interested in bartending? Oh my God! How much time do we have? Uh, like a half an hour for the oh, whole great. thing. Mike, uh, Mike usually talks for about twenty-eight minutes, and I get three questions in, so it's fine. <laughs> and you're welcome. It goes back. Uh, I've been a bartender about twenty-five years, and I have kind of straddled the line between before the big cocktail revolution and after it. 
So there's kind of a generation of us who kind of were in like mid-career when all these new things started happening. Like spirits were available and people became interested. It's like kind of pre-milk and honey and after milk and honey. Uh, I fell into it like many of us do. And the difference for me was that the first second I walked behind a bar, I realized that I loved it and I was really good at it. So I just kind of channeled a lot of my creative energy and a lot of my career energy into doing this one thing and just decided very early that I was going to do it forever. So I'm still here, still doing it. Right. And you got started in New York. No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. I got started in Seattle, Washington. Okay. In the mid nineties. Um, and oddly, you know, there's a kind of the narrative kind of goes in a lot of people's head that, you know, cocktails were kind of reinvented in, you know, early two thousands in New York city. Uh, Fully, totally, 100%, not the case. Uh, you know, I've never worked in a bar that didn't have fresh juice, and that's in 25 years. So, I mean, it's, it's the real story of kind of where we're at right now is much, is much different than the story that we kind of tell each other. Some of that is because people have careers and they need to say stuff, and some of it is just because, you know, it, it was spread out so many places around the world. But uh, Right, because I watched that, what's that hey, terrible bartender. bartender? Yeah, that documentary. Yeah. And it basically, like, somebody like discovered a cocktail book from the teens or whatever and was like, Oh my God, we should be making drinks this, this whole other way instead of using, you know, sweet and sour mix and right. flat soda. And, and, you know, and it's not wrong. And that movie is funny to me, you know, because a lot, you know, I was, <laughs> I was in that movie for about 10 seconds. Uh, and that kind of drove a narrative in a positive direction, which is uh, for people being interested in bartending as a thing and cocktails as a thing. But it also kind of created a narrative that is not necessarily accurate in how things went. So if you ask Dale DeGroff how things went, he's got his story. If you ask Gary Regan, he's got his story. They're not different stories. They're just different paths. There are many, many other people to ask. So that movie has kind of become canon for a lot of people, especially if they discovered it in, you know, Iowa or Kansas or, you know, somewhere that didn't have a cocktail scene. So it became something that people could focus on, much like, you know, a magazine like Imbibe would have been for someone in the late 90s sitting in their house, like waiting for their copy to come in saying like, oh, what's going on around the country? So, uh, you know, it's not again, it's not that it's not true. It's that it is a narrow picture of how we are where we are. All right. So from your perspective, how did we get to where we are now? The Internet, Mad Men, Uber and um, probably the conglomeratization of the spirits companies. So. You know, a lot of my evangelism now is trying to is trying to look at what we actually do, where we're at, and then kind of steer us back into a direction where we we are, you know, where bars are important and bartenders are important, and that's because of that whole narrative of where we end up. If that makes sense, I mean, it's it's a it's a big mouthful to say, but yeah, because I think. I mean, certainly in Houston, I feel like we think bartenders are pretty important. Bartenders think bartenders are important. That's true. Yes, bartenders think bartenders right. are very important. I think bar bars and bartenders are important to the planet. I don't think, and, and they're important to humanity. We're not important because we're on podcasts, and we're not important because we're in magazines, and we're not important because we're on television. We're important because, because the way society works, communities work, they need people like us. And in an age where everyone's got a cell phone and looking at it, in an age when we're all so kind of connected and disconnected at the same time, bars are one of the last places people can go to actually do stuff together, to speak to another human being and actually touch something. So that's kind of where that's that that's that's the the importance to I think society in general. We're not important because we're we're uh, well known, and we're not important because you know, we're culinary necessarily. That stuff's good and it's fun, but it's a lens through which to look at how we touch another person. Uh, and where we are as a community and where we are as a movement, and, that, and that's why that, to, to rest it back to the whole Hey Bartender thing, is we kind of trained a third and fourth and fifth generation of bartender to kind of want to be in that group of people who you'd make a movie about. So our importance now has become more about more inward looking saying like, this is, I want to be in that look like, and, you know, it's a big bubble and then there's a smaller bubble and a tiny little bubble in the middle. And everyone's trying to aim to get into that little bubble. I'm trying to get everyone to look out 
to say it's not I'm I'm not important because I'm me. I'm important because I'm here to help you. And that's the difference. Yeah, it's like a it's not like a free psychiatrist because you're certainly you're paying for it, but there's like you're paying for the drinks, but there is that like that connection you can have with a bartender, right? Like talking talking about your life with a bartender and, right. and a, connecting with a stranger. Or your Uber driver or your, you know, or your uh uh you know, your hairdresser or something. Yeah, I don't know. My my most recent Uber driver had a whole uh, elaborate public works plan that he wanted to raise in lower streets to make right turns easier. I feel like it was kind of <laughs> both I wish uh, I could have heard that. very <laughs> selfish on his part and uh, potentially very expensive for me as a taxpayer. But but yes, I I do recognize that that other people get get a little pop psychology from from their Uber drivers. I didn't know uh, Michael was an Uber driver, too. Uh, no, I, I should be. Uh, yeah, so, so not, uh, I mean, not to, not to hijack it, but... Uh, well, yeah, not to hijack it with my uh, terrible Uber driver. No, story. I mean, I, I, I shouldn't have mentioned Uber. But, but also, Uber is one of the things I listed is where we're at. You know, if you look at a city like Houston, if you look at a city like Los Angeles, you know, a lot of the stuff was focused in New York City because in New York City, you can go to many different bars quickly without having to do things like park. Or get a DUI. You know, I was in L.A. right at a moment when Uber became a thing, right? So all of a sudden you have bars popping up where bars never could be before because people didn't want to drive to them. And I see a similar thing in Houston where you can have somewhere like downtown Houston where you have walkable experiences, which is nice because you can get four or five different bar experiences with one trip. Or... If I'm going to go to, you know, if I'm going to go to Johnny's Gold Brick and then I know I can take a quick Uber to Lalo or I can take a quick Uber to all these different places, I don't have to worry about monitoring my consumption in the way I would if I were driving. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, I went to a whiskey dinner last week and it's just such a no brainer. It's like, I'm going to spend the 15 bucks or whatever to take an Uber to this because I can just enjoy myself and not worry about. You know, do I want that extra shot with the bartender at right. the end of the like? Of course I do, right? Because I'm not driving home. I mean, we still have to be responsible, obviously, but it's yeah, a I'm different not, kind I'm of. I'm not respons- getting sloppy enough to right. get in a fight or anything. It's a different different kind of responsibility to say, "Am I going to be okay physically, or am I going to be okay to drive?" And that's different. All right, so Mike, let me bring let me bring you back into this. I, I thought I had the afternoon off. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, but was part of the decision to open the Cottonmouth Club downtown a recognition that you were part of an emerging nightlife district. You could, you could open and be a part of that scene without. Uh, yeah. It, and, and know that you were going to have enough customers because people can, people are used to coming downtown and they're used to Ubering there. Uh, yes and no. So one of the things that we really enjoy about the space at 108 Main is that we're on the 100 block. So when we opened, we had Lillian Bloom next door to us, and now we have Etro, another you know, two doors down from us, and we have Houston, Houston Watch Company around the corner. But we're not in the three or four hundred block, which is heavily populated with other bars, and we kind of like the idea of being, you know, a block, block and a half away from that. That we feel as if what we do is unique enough that people will walk an extra block, and and you know, with Etro and Lillian Bloom now as neighbors. You know, it's great. I mean, you know. Well, yeah, because that was one of my big questions for you is, are people walking the extra two blocks to, to come see you? They are. And we're, and we're looking for more. And, and, you know, again, it's something that we're constantly working on. But what we do is different. And what we do is unique. You just got a, a quick little clip of what Michael and my conversations are like late night having a whiskey. And I told you, don't get me started. This yeah. Not. And, and, and sometimes when it was going to be a five minute conversation it turns into five hours. And that's actually how we first met, you know, eight some odd years ago. Oh, good. That was, that was one of my questions. There you go. How did you guys meet? So there's a gentleman named uh, uh, Ross Hendry, who is a mutual friend of ours. And I had run, run into Ross at Tales of the Cocktail at a party. And the party was winding down. He's like, hey, what are you doing? And, and I said, I don't know. He said, all right, well, we're going to go over to Old Absinthe House and have drinks. That's kind of where people meet up. I said, all right, great. So we get out of the cab. Again, this is eight years ago, so no Ubers or anything. So we hop out of the cab, get there. And the first person Ross runs into is Michael. So they're talking. And Ross is, knows that I wasn't talking. He's like, oh, do you guys know each other? I go, no, we've never met before. We started talking. And I want to say we talked for at least three or four hours, you know, out on Bourbon Street. 
And, you know, a few months later, I was heading up to uh, New York for Thanksgiving with my family. So we stopped into Ward 3. Because I think at that point, you didn't even have Rum House yet. Or Rum House was about to happen. Probably, Some, yeah. Somewhere around that time. And I uh, got to check out Ward 3. Um, and we became friends ever since. Yeah. So, Michael, how did, how did Mike come to you with this idea of opening a bar in Houston? Because you've obviously, as, as Mike was saying, you've had, you've had bars in New York. You've worked on literally projects all over the world. So uh, we talked about a general idea over the years of saying we should work on something, we should work on something. And I came and did a pop-up, what, four years ago, three years ago? Three years ago, yeah, I think. Yeah, when, it I was, just, when I was... about uh, to happen. I think the anniversary is like right, next week. The anniversary. Uh, yeah, I ran a bar called the Holiday Cocktail Lounge, which is in kind of like a bartender's bar for the whole world. And... Uh, so we did a lot of pop-ups all, all, all over the place. So we did one at, uh, at Reserve 101, and we kind of started talking around an idea of doing something together. And then I was coming to a, into town to do a different kind of project, um, cocktails at the airport, actually. And, uh, you know, with, with bars in general, it's all theoretical until it's not. And Mike took the initiative to just start looking at spaces. And I was in town. This was right before Harvey, actually. And we had a guy uh, drive us around saying, like, let's look at this, let's look at that. And then we ran into the place of 108 Main, and I just, I mean, it felt very comfortable and familiar to me. And so we just kind of looked at each other and were like, okay, let's see if we can do it. And, you know, there's a lot more steps to it, obviously, but, you know, raise money. And then all of a sudden we're just like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing. So what was the vision? Because, I mean, Mike, you were just saying that, you think what you're doing is different than, than the bars on the 300 block. What is it about the Cottonmouth Club that's different than other bars? Well, I would say what we're doing is not just different to the three or 400 block of Maine, but it's different than what's going on across the country. We, the benefit is that Michael and I both were bartending in the 90s, so we kind of saw, you know, not to set them off again, but we saw what, what the world was like. Don't poke the bear. Yeah, exactly. Don't poke the bear. So It's like my whole job. My, my whole job is hosters to put the bear. Exactly. Started. That's your job, not my job. My job is to calm the bear. So, uh, no. So, we have a little bit of a different perspective. You know, we've been doing this for a very, very long time. Uh, Michael and I have different perspectives and different points of view that we bring to each other. That kind of helps balance one another out. But we, we go after the same end goal of creating a community within our four walls. And we're not scared to take chances. We've done it. So we, we really look at things uh, in a unique lens. Right. I mean, I, we've talked about this on the show before. Reserve 101, your whiskey bar downtown, was a, a, a real crapshoot. I mean, there, there was, um, you know, because you're kind of pre, you know, you're pre-Anvil, which is kind of the bar that changed a lot of things in Houston. And in a location, had, had the House of Blues even opened? No. We opened uh, about 10 months before the House of Blues. We opened before Discovery Green. So, and again, whiskey was not a thing. There was not a craft cocktail scene, per se, in Houston. So you mean I didn't have to thing. knife somebody to find a bottle of plantains on a shelf in this town? <laughs> no, but don't worry. I, I, I have a barrel coming pretty soon for you, so oh, you'll good. be all right. You'll be all right. It'll be fine. But, yeah, you know, reserves is an example. And, and not just that we wanted Reserve to be a world-class whiskey bar, we wanted to take chances with what our collection was. Again, if you look at most giant whiskey collection-type bars, whether they're steakhouses or other whiskey bars around the country, around the world, they go very heavy on big-name brands. So they're going heavy collection, McAllen, Glenfiddich, Glenlivet. We go after small, unique brands. We go after other things. Right now, we have three McCallans on our back bar of 355 whiskeys, whereas most people would have, like, 20. Right. So we know that you can get McCallan everywhere, and McCallan's a great whiskey, but you can get it everywhere. We want to find the unique esoteric whiskeys that are, uh, signify a particular category or subsection of whiskey in general. Right. So then, Michael, what about the spirit selection at Cottonmouth Club? Because... My sense is that it's, it's maybe you're, you're going for kind of the opposite of that, not a, a smaller list rather than a ton of bottles. Well, some of it's limited by space, but I mean, what he said earlier about me, uh, I'm not going to 
shoot right back over to him. I mean, that, that mini part of the conversation is part of the magic of Mike Raymond. Our spirit selection is kind of growing and it's all pointed at, um, kind of at the cocktail menu and things that we like and things that are broadly useful when you're making, especially when you're making drinks up, but more what we're trying to do with the spirits is kind of have a clientele that is learning how to drink them in general. So that's why we're starting a kind of different program for both public facing and bartender facing of these kind of master classes. So every Thursday, Mike Raymond's going to do a spirit seminar for the public. And part of that is because he's good at it. Part of it is because he's passionate about it. But the other part of it is if we have enough people who uh, are used to drinking enough different kinds of things and they're used to experimenting and finding what they like, then we get to have more and more and varied variety of things. So if we have a clientele who we don't have to hand sell everything to, they come in and we're like, Hey, check it, check out this new mezcal. Hey, check out this new whiskey. Hey, check out this new thing. Then we have enough people coming in saying like, okay, cool. What do you got today? Then we can have a broader selection of things. Uh, and that goes, and that goes for cocktails as well. Right. And you, you have people that come in and don't just go, Oh, give me a Tito's and soda. We have, and you know, and Tito's and sodas are fine, but if, if we have people who are coming specifically because we have a variety of things, then, uh, then we get to offer them more. We get to be more experimental. I could make a very experimental back bar today. That doesn't mean anyone's going to ask for anything. And I can't hand sell every bottle just because first of all, I don't work all the time. Second of all, just learning what they are is almost a lifetime of study. So if you have people who are coming in and they're used to saying like, okay, what's the new rum? Like what's interesting about the new thing? Then that helps because they're uh, because then we can go out farther afield because people are going to ask instead of me coming to you saying like, hey, 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 check out this thing you didn't know you wanted. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy that experience, and, and I've certainly enjoyed that experience at, at Reserve. Those times I've walked in, and Mike's been like, oh, hey, I've got I've got this thing. We got this barrel. We've got this thing. You've got to try. But I I can see how that would be tiresome to do with every single customer that walks through the door. Tell me, Mike, tell me a little bit more about these classes and kind of how they work. So they're going to be every Thursday, 6 p.m., and it's going to be very informal. It's going to be, you know, if five people walk in, then the five of us sit down on the couch in the back and we hang out and whatever three bottles I grab for the day, we're going to sit there, we're going to try them, we're going to talk about them, we're going to go into a deep dive of what, what's cool and unique about them and why I grab them. Again, if we get 20 people, maybe I'll grab three or four at a time. And then make it a little bit more personal, give it a, a little bit of a different thing. So opposed to, say, the tastings we do at Reserve where there are you know, 30, 40, up to 80 people before you know, in that back room, this is going to be a little bit more intimate. There's going to be a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time. And, and you know, again, I'm a big fan of saying that there's no stupid questions. You know, whatever you, someone wants to get into, I'm willing to talk about. You want to get into some funky rum? We'll talk about some funky Jamaican rum. You want to talk about what's going on in, in American craft whiskey? Cool. You want to talk about source whiskey? Cool. You want to talk about blended malt scotch? I'm down. Whatever it is, every Res week it'll be something Responsibly made tequila? Or irresponsibly made tequila. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, whatever the subject is and we want to get into it, I'm down to get into it. And, and again, I'm, I'm able to kind of go into things that are a little bit deeper because, I, you know, it's just me. Because you live and breathe this stuff. Yeah, well, and also, bit. we like nothing better in our own ways than uh, bursting bubbles. You know, the mythology that has to come around. I mean, this is why a lot of what we're going to do is unbranded, is because we don't, you know, we work with brands all the time, and we love them, and we love what they do, but people end up walking away from certain uh, kind of education aspects, thinking they know a true story, but not everyone knows what the true story is. Like I ask people all the time, it's like, do you want to know stuff or do you want to think you know stuff? And a lot of people want to think they know stuff and that's fine. But, you know, listening to Mike talk about whiskey, we, in, in, when people just kind of come out with what they've been told, if what they've been told is wrong, he has no problem saying it's wrong. That's what I think real education is about, is going in and saying like, okay, it's not just my opinion. I'm telling you what I know based on this person, this person, this person, that person who work all across the industry over time. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes the information about individual spirits comes from people who work for brands, either the brands or the distributors. And I'm not, I'm not going to say that they make stuff up. And, and obviously some of those people are friends of mine, 
but you know their their goal is to sell that product right well and and i think it's really important for people to understand that you have you know whether it's the master distiller or whoever who's making the product but then there's a whole marketing department that's brought in to craft a story around what the finished product is it's not the other way around people kind of see the story you know, whatever the, the marketing is that's out there and then think that, well, they took that and then came up with a brand to match that story. It's, no, it's, it's two separate entities that aren't even under the same roof 99% of the time. So you have the people at the distillery who are making this incredible product that they're excited about. They'll jot down some quick tasting mo- notes and send it off to the marketing department. The marketing department will then say, oh, okay, cool. I think we can make a story about this one singular little aspect and then that is what's blown up, you know, in the media and in and, and tastings and, and, you know, sales reps are out, you know, doing what they do. And they're like, oh, well, this is the most important thing because this is, you know, what they were handed to read. And a lot of times there is not that what they're saying isn't true. It's just not the full story. It's not the full picture of what's going on. Uh, one of the other things I want to talk about at the Cottonmouth Club is that you guys have two rooms right there's kind of downstairs which is like a well i won't call it a normal bar but it's it's a bar it's a bar it's a bar bar. and then there's upstairs where michael you kind of hold court what a couple times a month a little more i mean upstairs is a totally different vibe and we want we like that so downstairs is more this kind of like inspired by the 70s 80s cbgb rock rock and roll kind of thing and a lot of what we do respects that uh, uh reflects that and we have a menu and all the things you'd expect in a bar slash cocktail bar. Upstairs is a little more freeform. We do that's where we do a lot of our education. That's where we'll do our master classes. But it's also where we'll do pop ups. We do a lot of uh, like we have a booze bazaar every month, so we do a lot of public and private things up there. When I am there, I basically do the opposite of what we do downstairs. So if you're downstairs, you can ask for what you want, and that's wonderful. But upstairs, you get what I got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, the last time I was upstairs, it was like, you know, give me a spirit and a mood. Right. Well, and also it's that idea. I mean, I love bespoke cocktails and I've been doing them for many years. And it's an individualized experience that is more reflective of the person who comes in and me than about what the drink is. So it's not like I invented drink and want everybody to think it's so great. It's me trying to get to know people well enough to make something specifically for them. And that's a very powerful thing. And the more I get to know someone, the more times they come in, the more I can do that. I learn what they like. I learn like where to bring things out from. But it's also, uh, it, it, it's like free form. It's, it's like improvisation as opposed to, um, you know, reading from a music sheet, right? Right. And it's a little bit, and, and from a culinary perspective, it's a little bit like an omakase at a sushi bar, right. or a really good omakase right. where the, the chef, you know, the chef feeds you a couple of pieces and... And you go, oh man, I, I really like, I really like the first two pieces, and the third piece was just okay. Right. And then he goes, oh, then I got the right thing for you, and he busts out something you didn't even know he had. Well, and it requires an enormous amount of expertise, and that's you know, and that's uh, why if you get bartenders who, who, a lot of bartenders get mad when you try to ask them to make stuff up, and that's because they're trying to figure it. You know, like, you know, I'm trying to. I've been trying to explain it even just to myself to say, like, you have to be so arrogant that you can be really humble. And, you know, I've been doing this for many, many years and I'll put my cocktails against anyone on the planets. And that's great because that's me. But it allows me to really kind of uh, I don't I don't need I don't need someone to look at me and say, like, oh, my God, you make great cocktails. I need to have them come and sit with me. And I'm not trying to impress them with what I can do. I'm trying to get them to the point where they have something that they, they can really engage with and really love. And that's different. If you sit at my bar, I don't want you to look at me and say like, oh my God, like this cocktail is better than what I had at X place. I want you to say this cocktail um, is the best cocktail I ever had in my life. It's like, you know, trying, it's like if you can make an old fashioned for someone and, and that makes them cry. And, if you haven't had that experience, then you don't you then then you don't know what it's like to really be able to kind of like dive into someone's head and say like we're going to find the perfect thing for you right now, and it's going to help you in a way that is more than just a tasty cocktail. Tasty cocktails are easy, 
but making people make, making people's lives a little better is hard because it really requires you to kind of erase yourself, erase your entire ego and put yourself fully at the, uh, at the service of somebody else. Do you, do you have customers like come in and, and come upstairs and you try to do that? And they're just like, uh, just shut up and give me a vodka soda. Sure. In which case I would shut up and give them a vodka soda. And it's harder now, and it'll be harder after this conversation too, because when people come in and they have this experience, they go to their friends, they're like, no, 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 sit down, like watch them do the thing. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's dance monkey, dance monkey dance. Right. <laughs> or he's like, oh my God, he's going to make you cry. Watch. I'm like, then you have to like hit him. Uh, but it's still, it's, 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 it, it, and when Mike says what we do is different, a lot of what we do is really based on this idea of, of trying to identify that magic and trying to get everyone not just to participate in it, but trying to teach other people how to do it. So I spend a lot of time educating bartenders all over the world based on this thing. And because I am in Houston, I'm going to start doing it more specifically focused on Houston, not just because uh, we have a business here and we have a bar here, is because I love bars and I've been in the community of bartenders for a long time. And I want, um, I want everyone to kind of be able to kind of uh, engage their power and understand like why I can do this for 25 years and not try to go get a brand job and not try to go off and do something like, you know, I don't want to work for a distributor. I don't want it. The, the, the best thing about being a bartender is actually being a bartender. And it's hard to night after night, if you just think you're doing it to try to like climb a ladder to stay inspired. If you're trying to do it because you're trying to, uh, redefine a city or a planet or if you're trying to do it because you want to you want to like microdose happiness with people then it makes it a little more interesting right because you can sit there and say like okay i'm doing something besides just something that i'm embarrassed to tell my father-in-law oh you're still a bartender yeah i'm still a bartender like i'm not gonna not ever say that um but uh yeah that's kind of the new event and i mean that, and those are the master classes that i'll be doing i'll be doing bartender focused like deep dives where we'll talk about weird things like gratitude and posture and dancing and all the things that I, that, that I've started to try to like pull out as training that has nothing to do with cocktails. Yeah. And that is the other aspect of the Cottonmouth club that I really enjoyed other than just sitting up there and, and talking to you and drinking with you was the music was awesome. Thank you. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like all 70, mostly seventies and eighties stuff that like I, an emotional connection to you but you know we'd be talking about you know we'd be talking about whatever and then <clears throat> Mott the hoople would come on you know all the young dudes and i'm like man i saw i saw travis cover that song when they came to houston and you'd be like oh i love travis and like you'd hit me with right you know a travis song and like not that not that i'm trying to brag about my own taste of music or whatever <laughs> but like i don't meet that many people who a who even know all the young dudes and then never mind like care about Travis, you know? So, so just as a, as a personal connection to me, like whether or not the old fashioned makes me cry, it's like just like meeting someone who's into the same things I am. It's like, that's always, that's always fun for me. Right. And it's also, um, an active way of tending a bar and tending a bar is, is really how I try to think of it because it changes every time. Like I, I, you know, Mike and I talk about this, like one of our kind of early connections was there's no reason to open a bar unless you want it to be the best bar in the world. What that means is an ever changing spectrum. And the way that I now think of it is that as if you walk into my bar, it's a new bar. And if you and Mike and Colin and Michael and me are all in one bar in one moment that like at that moment on the planet, that might be the best bar in the world. You're like, awesome. And then one of us leaves and we're like, okay, it's not as good anymore. <laughs> so now we want to get back there again. So I try to approach every shift and every night, even if, if whether it's one person or a hundred people who's saying like, okay, this is what we got right now. How do we make this the best? And so if I'm overhearing you two talk about some concert that you saw, and because now I have the power of technology, I can sneak over to Spotify and throw a Travis song in. You, and to you, it's a little bit of like, Wait, wait, why is this song? We were just talking about this. It's kind of like being on Facebook when you just uh, were talking to your friends about uh, a pair of shoes and <laughs> all of a sudden that evil. shoe ad comes up. Yeah, it's a similar, similar thing, but this is a little bit cooler and less yeah, creepy. Like, 
it, you're still being eavesdropped on, but it's it's to yeah. your emotional benefit instead sure. of trying to sell you something. Well, right. and, and there's also something to be said about time and place. You know, it's kind of like the fourth dimension when you're talking about things. You know, we have the drink and, and ambiance and all those things are great, but there's something to be said about the right drink with the right conversation with the right song at the right time. And that's a very, you know, it's not a very tangible thing, but when it works and when it clicks, it's magic. Right. And I get that. You know, my, my version of that, just doing this job, is people come up to me and go, what's your favorite restaurant? Well, the right restaurant has to be for the right occasion, right? I, I go to different places when, you know, mom and I are having a catch-up dinner than when I want to go out with my friends and I want to celebrate my birthday or when I want to impress a date or, I mean. What's your favorite whiskey? Right. Yeah. Well, and also, like, you know, same with food, same with cocktails. These are emotional structures. And the way flavor works and the way your brain works is that if your brain is in a certain mindset, then something does taste better to you. It just is. Because there's not an objectivity to these things. And it's proven. I mean, I have a whole thing on it. Uh, so a lot of what I try to, to, to do myself and teach other people to do is how to get people's mindset into the place where they can have a transformative experience, a transformative experience. You can have a wonderful cocktail at many places. You can only have, uh, you can only have a life changing cocktail if all of those emotional elements are in place. So if I'm going to lunch with my mom, we're going to one place where the food is really what the food's always been. To me, that's the best place to have lunch because that's where I go with my mom. And when I'm there with her, I'm like, this is still amazing. It tastes better. Right. And if you went back or you, or you went to a restaurant in another city without her that was serving the same food, it wouldn't taste as good. Absolutely not. So when people come to me and they say, make me something up, they, the look in their eyes and the excitement in their voice and, and the inspiration they get by David Bowie on the wall and Mike's, Mike Raymond's paintings and all, like just the vibe of the place. Like you can see that they're just ready. And if they're not ready, then you're like, okay, great. Like I can't, like I can't, if, if I don't like you, I cannot make you a good cocktail. It's, it's true. I can make you, and, and you're not going to like but it. I'm it would not still taste like the it. same to somebody. But. It can't, but, but, we, but we don't deal in chemistry. Right. We deal in neurology. So my, my emotional mindset is important, as is yours. And that's how you can make someone cry with an old-fashioned. That might be the smartest thing anyone said on this podcast. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. That just he, he's going to try to steal my title three times. But, it's also, but, but this is also... Yeah, he's it, invited back all the time. <laughs> I but, see how it is. But this Last is time. also why we're having master classes, especially, and that's why mine are for bartenders, is because, and, this, and, it, and it reflects a little bit what Mike said about the brands, is like, if their job is to focus on what's in a bottle, and by extension and how they supported, which they did, the cocktail community, it was to take what's in that bottle and make something in a glass. My job is to put all of those things in context and to use that as a lens to create new structures for people. So my job is people. It's to create a community around which all of us can walk in and say, this is where I want to be and I am a better person for being in it. What do I sell? I sell an experience. So my friend Souther T, who has a bar, or he runs a bar called Moria Margo, he puts it really well. He says, uh, the, the drinks are free, but we sell hospitality. And, you know, hospitality is a, a totally different marker. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to get this, the city of Houston to understand that we're not just selling drinks. We're trying to create a home around which all of us can walk out and say, like, my life is better because this is here. And it sounds weird and hippie and all this stuff, but it's not, uh, it's not unnecessary. I think it's more necessary now than ever. And, that's, and that's, we, we want our people to do it, but we also want all places to do it because I need a place to go to. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're just trying to get everyone up and uh, we're trying to lead by example, basically. And it's hard and, you know, whatever, but we're here and this is what we're doing. Well, and we also want to share, you know, combined, we have about 60 years in hospitality. We're, we're, we don't keep it all to ourselves or just to our staffs. We're, we're, we want to give the knowledge we have. We want to give the experience we have to the fellow people in our community. It's, it's, it's intended to be shared. It's not intended to be a big secret or mystery to people. Well, gentlemen, I have to say, uh, 
this has been fascinating for me. Uh, we are running a little long. Not that I'm, yeah, not that I'm surprised. Sorry. No, no. My, my apologies. I, I spoke way too much this time. No, no. It's all good. It's all it's all in the day's work. But uh, but I have to I have to put a pin in this. Um, Michael, I, I end these shows with something I call the lightning round. Um, five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Uh, Michael Neff, what is your? Do you have a standard cocktail that you order when you walk into a bar for the first time? Old fashioned every time. Who is? What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Suicidal Tendencies opening for Queens Rec in Orlando, Florida. What is? Uh, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-through. McDonald's, two cheeseburgers, fries, Coke. Have you been in Houston long enough to have a favorite Houston sports figure? No. And have you been in Houston long enough to develop a favorite place to get a taco? No. All right. We're going to work on that. I hope so. I'll give you a list. Uh, Mike Raymond and Michael Neff, tell us, tell us how to follow uh, the Cottonmouth Club. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Cottonmouth Club. You can come see us at 108 Main Street. Uh, we're open till 2 a.m. every day, and we are always there for anyone who needs a place to hang out. And CottonmouthHouston.com for the website and at Cottonmouth for Facebook and whatever other places we are. And then I'm on social media. Michael is. Yeah, it's bad for people. So we should all stop. Yeah. So there you go. Um, but yeah, that's it. Well, even though it's bad for people, you can follow me on Twitter <laughs> at E. Sandler. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.